0: Welcome to Sparks of History. Joining us today is Rabbi Shmuel Reifman, acclaimed speaker, best-selling author, business coach, and the CEO of Self-Mastery Academy. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Reichman, for being with us today.
1: Pleasure is all mine, Ari. Good to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, for starters, um, Rabbi Reichman, you, you spent a year at Harvard University studying religious philosophy and literature as an Ivy scholar. What's your take on what is happening in college campuses today, especially the elite ones like Harvard, are Jewish students actually fearful, and what can be done, what should be done to combat this phenomenon today?
1: That's a good question. It's a good question. It's a question which probably delves into the, the history of the university system itself and what the university system was supposed to be versus what the university system actually is. Uh, And the short answer is that within the past couple of months, the university systems have actually made a huge mistake of revealing what they actually are, which is fascinating. So if you go back to the the question of what a liberal arts or what a university education was supposed to be an ideal world, it was, you know, back to the Chanukah. So, you know, the Aristotelian Greek model of exploring the arts and the the pursuit of truth. And the question of what is the purpose of life and things like that, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom itself, the the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of truth, the, the power of questions, the power of thinking of genuine thought. And while not necessarily being a Torah foundation, it was uh in a kind of the the counterpart of that pursuit of truth to the highest extent possible and there's kind of two components of what the educational system has actually become especially in the west one is the kind of the the complete absence of thought to prepare people to enter the workforce so the essential building of the countering the necessity to have workers in the industrial industrial revolution to prepare people to enter the workforce. So a great A student is someone who can answer questions to test your IQ to essentially categorize you into can be a good worker. So that's the the classic educational system is to enter the workforce. And so people who are thinkers, who are creative, who are ambitious, who think out of the box, those are the C students and the people who can essentially memorize information, spit it back and, you know, do well in school, so to speak, they get jobs and they're kind of entered into uh, indentured servitude where you take out major loans and you spend the rest of your life working off those loans and you don't really accomplish much and you work for people who uh, didn't really buy into the system. And then there's the liberal arts. In the liberal arts, which you know classically was the people who were thinkers and uh, creative the, the future leaders of the generation, the modern Western elite system is a postmodern system, which is an indoctrinized system to essentially teach people how to think, not in the classic sense of how to think, but really to teach people what to think. And the what is a very, very powerful system of thought, which is in the postmodern system of thought. The basic premise is that there really is no truth, there is no meaning, there is no purpose of life. And if you want to go through like the evolution of of kind of like when you learn a classic slogan, Gemara, Gemara is fascinating, right, you basically aren't taught the answer, you're taught possible answers. And if you enter into the arena of thought, you have this concept of the ilu be'ilu chayim, which is that if you have a bi versus Rava, you have Basil versus Beishama, you have different approaches to Anisugya, uh, they're both true. And what does that mean? So if you go through the Rishonim, there's different ways of approaching the question of truth. One approach is that there's one truth, and there's many possibilities, but in the journey towards the one answer of truth, you get wrong answers that lead you to the right answer. So they're all true in the sense that they all lead you to the one right answer. And that's how some people learn. And then there's another approach, which is that it's not that there's one answer, but that there's a pluralism of truths. There's multiple truths. And that Bayes-Challam and Bayes-Hillel are both right. And we hold like Bayes-Hillel, that's what Gamora says, because Bais, you know, Bais hillel did certain things, and without getting to the complexity, it's a whole fascinating share. But there are multiple truths. And then the postmodern approach is that there's not that there are multiple truths, but the fact that there are multiple truths, if you open up any literary piece of work, if you open up any possible commentary, you open up any question in life, because there's multiple perspectives, there must be no truth, because if everything is true, nothing's true. Now, where postmodernism goes wrong is a couple things. Number one is that it's not that everything is true, it's that there's a spectrum of truth. So just because there are multiple perspectives doesn't mean that everything is true and therefore nothing is true. But that there's a spectrum for the possibilities. Number two is that just because there are multiple truths doesn't mean not only that there's everything is true, but not everything is equally true. So there can still be a hierarchy of truth, as in deeper truth, as more true, less true. And the most important problem is that the multiplicity of truth is actually rooted in what the, the deeper bali Balimachshava, deeper Jewish thinkers would call oneness of truth. So if you have white light, it's refracted through a prism, and you get multiple colors. If you have music, you know, you play individual notes, but the actual melody transcends the notes. Consciousness transcends the individual faculties of senses. So you have this idea of oneness that's refracted into multiplicity. The multiple truths are actually rooted in a deeper oneness. And the postmodernists have never been exposed to and completely reject that idea of a higher truth. and because they're faced with a multiplicity of perspectives, they reject the multiplicity and essentially say there's no truth. Right? So we end up happening, what end up having is, is a fascinating ideological and doctrinized system of thought, which is that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there's no truth. If you open up the world of, I mean, this is the quantum mechanics versus the general relativity, then the world of quantum mechanics, you know, kind of all logic and reason, all sense of the world as we know it breaks down. So the postmodern world has broken down the, the system of classical truth, classical meaning, classical purpose. And in a world where there is no truth, where there is no meaning, where there is no purpose, um we are faced with a recognition that the history of western civilization has been a religious foundation trying to pursue truth and live a life of truth but if there is no truth then religion is a problem and in the course of evolution the next stage of human evolution is to evolve beyond religion which is a dogmatic mindless uh system of the past so to speak that no longer serves a purpose now For the, this is kind of the Nietzschean God is dead revolution, which is that if there is no God, if there is no truth, if there is no meta foundation of anything, then you're faced with nothing. But in that nothingness, there's the realization that you have been given a gift of life, that you do have a moment of existence in this corporeal finite fleeting world. And you might as well, instead of giving up your only sense of existence to something that does not exist, which is religion and truth, which is mindless and and foolish, you should live the most enjoyable life that you can in the most meaningful way that you can by choosing your own value system, choosing your own truth and enjoying life as you can. So that's the transgender movement, which is that there is no male or female, there's no identity, there's no reality, there's no meta reality, Uh, all principles, all truth is made up. It's a social construct and therefore choose your own.
0: Uh, so How does this, this morph into what's happening today on in campuses? Yeah, so, so, so. In, in, in other words, you, you would think from this approach that there would be almost total indifference, nihilism. You know, you yeah. do your thing, I do my thing. But what we sure, see here sure. is 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 college students, so it appears, and maybe faculties taking very strong positions and saying that yes. these are the right positions, absolutely yeah. right. How do we get there? How, how do we get there? Um,
1: so I'm going to get there in probably three minutes. I just got to finish building the framework because it is it is fascinating because you think that nihilism leads to indifference, but it doesn't. Because the source of nihilism nowadays is a meaningful nihilism, which is a religious nihilism, which is an idealization of nihilism, which is essentially building your own pursuit of truth within a truthless reality. So what ends up happening is that you've passionately, this of the radical left, you passionately fight for an anti-religious society, which is, it's also the source of Black Lives Matter, it's the source of trying to deconstruct and rewrite American history. And the whole purpose is that at the next stage of evolution is a world where you only have a couple years in this world and enjoy it without the restrictions of the past that, you know, the, the patriarchal, you know, the, the, the whole, all the talking points of what you're seeing on college universities, the liberal left media, the whole purpose is that the past is a mess, religion is a mess, truth is a mess, and just try to live your life as enjoyably as you can for the limited time you do have while building a better future that's essentially not bound by the stupidity of the past. So what ends up happening is that the pursuit of meaninglessness is actually their pursuit of meaning and to deconstruct meaning and purpose and truth in the classic sense is the new forefront of the battle. But the left has done it brilliantly. So what they've done is instead of shouting on the streets, religion is gone, religion is dead and in with the new. Uh, they have essentially taken over the university system, they've taken over Hollywood, and they've taken over uh, liberal media. So, what you have is basically Hollywood that has been distilling these very uh, postmodern nihilistic seedlings of ideas for the past 30 years in all film. You have a university system that has professors who passionately indoctrinate their students with a postmodern philosophy that, you know, basically with the new, out with the old, of deconstructing American history, deconstructing religious history and trying to replace it with a postmodern, atheistic, nihilistic uh, kind of everything that you see playing on the front lines now. And you have a liberal media of CNN and BBC and uh, MSNBC that have uh, are funded by and essentially build in a, a one-sided narrative that is designed to build in this future and the future basically has two problems there let's face it as in the big problem is number one america's history america is based on a conflict so, you know when they broke away from england there was a question on whether they're going to be a better christian nation that uh, does away with the corrupt monarch and in with a better open christian society or whether it's going to break away from Christianity, religion and be an either open society liberal society or an atheistic society and this was at the very heart of the, the founding of America. It's a question of in God we trust, uh, natural God-given rights or natural rights. These were the, the dilemmas in the writing of the Constitution and this was the, the existential battle at the heart of America that the modern university is trying to literally erase and make America a racist, horrible country so that they can essentially do in with a new America that uh, has no christian foundation has no religious foundation but is completely uh, essentially rebirthed so to speak and then you have israel which is a much more fundamental problem and the problem with israel is that israel represents the postmodern's worst nightmare embodied and animated in real time which is a country that's a democracy that's fundamentally built off of religion And it's the absolute existential nightmare of the left because they believe in democracy that's not only, you know, kind of not built on religion, but that religion doesn't exist. So to have a religious democracy is literally the worst nightmare of what America could become, which is the university, the liberal media, and the entire radical left's worst possible nightmare. So what it means to live a life of wisdom is to not see the world as it is, but to ask the why questions, as in why are things happening? Not what do you see on the surface, but where is that stuff from? So no rational person would actually justify the idea that civilized rational people support Hamas, right? No, no one, it's just, it's insanity. But you have to ask, like, why would they support Hamas? Like, why would the university systems, the university professors, university students, why are they so supportive of Palestine? Why are they so supportive of Hamas? And the answer, not the answer, but in terms of when you ask these why questions, it's like in the Torah, there's a classic Ramban versus Rashi. When you have a, a bad guy, someone who's evil, are they simple? Are they simple evil in the sense that they're corrupt, they're nonsensical, they're not intelligent, they're just essentially inhumane, or are they essentially brilliant beyond brilliant and they made one fundamental mistake in their brilliant construct of reality? So you have Bilam, you have Korach, you have Esau, you have Yishmael, you have all, you have Lavan are they just you know kind of 1920s bad guys or are they more sophisticated bad guys as in there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and they're actually you know par to par the real foil of good because they actually represent the ultimate good with one small flaw that makes them that evil but they're actually rooted in a lot that's actually true and the more sophistication you give to your enemy the more you can actually combat them because when you think that they're uncivilized and dumb you not only are wrong but you are not equipped to actually deal with the real problem at hand and the real problem is that the the left is brilliant because there are pawns in every world demonstration, and then there are players behind the scenes who are actually manipulating them, but they're brilliant and they know what they're doing. So here uh, you and, have, and this. we're
0: we're seeing that when people go to these demonstrations, like, yeah, exactly, exactly. We see these, we see these clips, these undercover people that ask questions, and no one really, no one knows what they're knows talking Anything, about. no one knows yeah. anything.
1: And it's it's fascinating because you have the mob mentality. Listen, there are lots of people who are clueless, who are just looking for meaning and acceptance and social worth and social value. And they know that if they moral signal the right way, they'll be accepted. And for people who are not developed uh, intellectually, philosophically, existentially, they just need to know that their life matters. And for people who have an agenda, you can take full advantage. Of people, and when you have a microphone to the world, and you basically say, "Here is what you need to say to be socially valued by millions of other people," it's very easy to utilize that. And that's the whole, uh, the whole essence of of social media and public media and liberal media is that if you can guide the moral virtue signaling of humanity, you can use people's need to be accepted and to find their meaning and purpose to essentially further your own agenda so in a perfect world here's the truth the liberal left university system they hate hamas and islam as much as they hate judaism and israel because they see them both as fundamental blockades to their future idealistic utopia in this world which is not investing the limited life you have into some eternal reality but recognizing there is no eternal reality and enjoy the evolved a meaningless matter of existence that you have and nothing matters, but the fact that you are matter that thinks something matters, allows you to have an enjoyable life while you are still alive and conscious. Now, there's a two-pronged approach. The, the, the most important blockade to a democratic society that's nihilistic is Israel. Israel needs to be obliterated because Israel represents the fundamental, not just something barbaric, like you know a jihadist terrorist organization everyone can agree is evil but Israel represents something that actually has a rational foundation of maybe a real enemy so you need to get rid of Israel so for people who
0: let's say when when you say Israel can can we um say that's the same thing as saying the Jewish people in this case
1: in this case, you can. I mean, that's kind of the fascinating thing is that Israel is going through its own identity crisis, and the identity crisis was actually uh, kind of transcended because of an external enemy that allowed Israel to identify unify as the Jewish people. So Israel is not always the Jewish people or Judaism as much as it was essentially facing its own identity crisis. But once you had an external enemy, it solidified and unified the Jewish people in a way that I've never seen before. And it's it's inspiring beyond belief. We're not going to get into the, the, sometimes the worst things in life become the best things. But what ends up happening now is that you have something very interesting. If I was a postmodern intellectual, I'd basically say, there's a hypocrisy here, which is that Hamas wants to kill everyone on our side. Hamas wants to kill the West. Hamas wants to kill everyone who's LGBTQ, who's transgender, who's gay, who's lesbian. They they hate us, but there's something very convenient. We can victimize Hamas and the Palestinians to allow for the entire world to gang up against Israel and finally destroy Israel. Once we destroy Israel, memory is very short. So now we no longer have a Western democratic government that is religious. We've destroyed the last hope of a religious future for the world. And now, you know, it's like, how long ago was COVID? Like two years ago, three years ago, no one remembers COVID. No one remembers COVID at all. Like memory is shorter than you imagine. So the hypocrisy of then flipping and then having the world go against Islam, it's fine, right? You just give it a year, give it two years, and then we can just change the story. But it's that oh, now the bad guy is Hamas, now the bad guy is Turkey, now the bad guy is all of the Islamic countries, and then that'll be the next stage of the battle for a postmodern world. But if you're a pawn and you don't think in the future, you don't see the invisible, you just hear what you hear on the news and you go forward, then you don't have to think three steps ahead, you just think what's happening now. So what's happening in universities is that the leadership, and the the system of thought is not only, you know, support the little guy, support the victim, support the oppressed, but you're told who the oppressed is, and you're told that to gain social worth and social value, and to essentially gain the moral high ground, you have to combat that which you're told to combat. And you have this mob mentality of Israel is the Goliath, Israel is the big guy, Israel is a superpower, Israel is the oppressor, Israel is the apartheid state. And if you want to be accepted in this woke, cancel culture society, you need to gang up and destroy Israel, you need to gang up and destroy the Jewish people. And it's fascinating to watch in real time, like this is a movie, like this is a novel, this is a dystopian type of story, which like, in theory, this would be a great know showcasing of what happens when you have a behind-the-scenes totalitarian system that essentially governs society without governing and brainwashes people into doing that which you'd never think was possible but you're seeing this happen in real time and as you said the inspiring response is the unity within the Jewish people is something that's not only unprecedented but it's inspiring beyond belief because when you finally are faced with a global threat that's coming against you it's like are you haridi are you right-wing are you shivish are you ou are you yu are you Sioni? are you kirov are you chabad are you Litvish? are you hasidish are you it's like everyone no matter what frame what type of judaism you are like you feel the existential threat not against you but against clients and a couple of really good things have happened. Number one is that the Jewish people have united in a way which usually there's a small terrorist attack. Kleisel will comes together for a day and then goes back to business as usual laterron you know maybe a week. It's like stage by stage. but what's happened over the past couple of months is that the threat has gotten larger and the unity has just ascended uh, paralleling the existential threat. And number two is that the left really showed its cards in a way that it never has. So the brilliance of what they did was that no one really saw to the extent of how bad things had gotten, how much it was an ideological indoctrinized system, and how much it was no longer you go to an elite university to get a great education, as much as you go to an elite university, get into extraordinary debt, and you you get an agenda and an ideology, you don't get taught how to think, you get taught what to think. So you have some people like, you know, Jordan Peterson, who essentially came from the system and tried to basically warn the West that the university system is no longer what we thought it was. But it takes, it takes kind of an experience of seeing firsthand what is actually happening like when harvard didn't respond when all those uh you know harvard systems kind of came out with their pro hamas uh agenda literally hours after the october 7th attack and it's just gone downhill from there with yale with nyu with columbia just you know you kind of see what's actually happening on campus and the whole value of the elite liberal arts is not only valueless; it's it's as corrupt and destructive as humanly possible. And you know, what I I gained nothing. You know, I went to the University of Chicago as well, got a master's and pursuing a PhD there. But University of Chicago is not nearly as woke and and left as as Harvard. It's much better than Harvard in terms of value as well. It just doesn't have the the prestige necessarily, and the and the layman's uh, terminology but the entire liberal art system is valueless like you don't learn anything valuable you learn essentially a curriculum of what to think and you are essentially built as a you know social justice warrior to go out and destroy all of history and all of the value and that's kind of the classic the, the friction between liberalism and conservatism is that conservatives who are not open-minded, they try to just live in the past, and liberals who are not open-minded, they just try to wipe away the past and move towards a better future. And it's that yin-yang, chesed, and teferes, the balancing of right and left, the balancing of progress and history and tradition that allows for progress, and that's the essence of Tosh pet. Tosh Valpeh is fundamentally rooted in Tosh Ebek and there's no such thing as a new mitzvah, but there's always been chanesh as long as you're fundamentally rooted within the Masorah, within tradition. And the radical left has gone so radical and the radical traditionalists have gone so close-minded that you have this crazy tension where there's really no middle ground. There's no dialogue. There's no conversation.
0: Left is coming, right is coming, and being squeezed, the middle is being squeezed out. Exactly. You, you, exactly. you had mentioned before that there's... Maybe two types of evil: the the raw, in your face evil, and I guess what you uh, what what seems to me like you're calling a sophisticated evil or a deeper evil that's somehow connected. So if, if we take Hannon and we and we take Greek wisdom, so that they they came and they offered an alternative. I mean, it was beauty, it was wisdom. There's there something inherently good in there, and and then it was taken. And let's call it sophisticated evil. Wh- wh- what is, what, what is, what's happening now though seems it's sophisticated in, in, in the way you're describing it and its deviousness. But, but where's that kernel of truth that that you know that 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 they're hanging on to that makes them what you called before, you know, evil that just kind of went off the deris? When, when so off went off the
1: path. Yeah, I think it, it's a brilliant question. I think it's probably the most difficult question to answer because it requires for not only Jews, but for Jews, Christians, Muslims, for everyone, ever, everyone in a fundamental sense is, is faced with a fundamental question, which is why are we here? right you're born into consciousness into existence and you have all of these components intellectual philosophical emotional existential spiritual physical your relationships your finances your career your impact your family family your legacy your responsibility what is life why is life and most people go through a phase where they at least accept the responsibility of trying to discover the truth and the pursuit of truth Everyone wants to actually get to the truth, and when you want to get to the truth, you need to reject everyone else's truth to justify your own existence. Because if you don't have the truth and someone else does, that means you're not true, and it's very vulnerable to actually going a lifelong journey towards the truth, like Avraham like Moshe Rabbeinu. And most people will close off the channel and say, "I have the truth." And the whole liberal system is designed to rupture that which claims to be true and say there's something better that's not encapsulated within your truth, we need to improve the truth. And the truth behind the radical left is that they're always going to push something that's not contained within the traditional conception of reality and civilization society and say this is missing, therefore, what's the, what was contained in the truth of the past is no, is no, is no longer truth. And we need to replace that with a better truth, but they usually go too far and they reject the truth within that which they rejected and they essentially replace it with something which is a small piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. And that was the fundamental battle of Hanukkah. I gave a three hour shear just the other week and I'll kind of summarize it in 60 seconds. Uh, people underrate the, the classic battle of Hanukkah, you know, Maharal talks about this, the Rambam talks about this is a battle for truth, but the Greeks claimed to have the, the truth and they basically tried to destroy the Torah, which was a representation of a higher truth. And Hanukkah, the, the Chag of Torah Shemalpah, the Chag of progressing truth, uh, defeated, you know, in the words of Refetner, defeated the, the truth of the Greeks. And the truth of the Greeks was pure intellect and the truth of the Torah was something that transcends intellect, but fundamentally incorporates and includes intellect as well. It's the Hanukkah. It's the holiday of light. And again, that white light that transcends some of its pieces, but gets refracted into the prism of the seven colors, which is the seven days of the week, the seven colors in the spectrum of light, the seven notes of the musical scale. But the Hanukkah, the root of the miracles was with you know, shemen oil, which is the same root as Shemona Eight. It's you know, according to the Masei, Eighth is the Teva, it's the day of the Prismila. milah. Torah was the first day of the eighth week the Chanukah, miracle lasted eight days, it was eight transcending seven, it was the miraculous transcending the natural, but incorporating the miraculous within the natural. Now, if you actually go deeper into the Greek battle, the Greek battle was a manifestation of a, just like you have Adma Avinu that essentially then filters to Yitzchak, then to Yaakov, Yisrael, the Greek tradition had a very similar mesura, where you have Socrates, who we have the Socratic method, which is to question everything. And when you start with Socrates as the pillar and the foundation of Greek thought, you basically have someone who's the father of questioning a surface reality and realizing that the truth of the age is not true. Because if you question things and you don't get answers, you realize that there is no answer yet established within society. So Socrates, at least through the eyes of Plato, is famous for going around questioning everything, everyone, And he didn't give answers as much as showed that we don't have the answers. And the Socratic method is not to get the answer as much as to go on the journey, like the Hegelian journey of you have something, you question, you get something better, you question, you get something better, but Socrates didn't find something better. He found the fact that there was no answer in civilization, and that's why he was put on trial. He was put on trial for corrupting the youth, for corrupting society, because he broke down the paradigm of truth within Greek culture, but didn't give them something better. And um, I'm sure I say there's nothing worse than destroying someone's belief system and not replacing them with something better. But he was asked to repent and to say I was wrong. And he wouldn't because in his eyes, he was fighting for the truth. And the truth that he lived by was that I haven't yet discovered the truth. But I know the truth that you claim to be the truth is not the truth. And he was literally killed. He was Moser Nefesh, the shame MS, but his MS was that I don't have the MS. And I don't know if there's an MS, but I'm not going to pretend that there is truth if there is no truth. And then Plato, his, you know, Tom and went on a journey of actually trying to discover a truth to essentially redeem his teacher and say he went into the unknown like Avram Avinu. Avram Vino went into that unknown and found the truth. Socrates went into the unknown and didn't find the truth. Plato saw his teacher die for the sake of truth Uh, but the truth that he died for was that there isn't a truth so he said i'm going to find that truth and he built the platonic system which you know deeply parallels you know deeper jewish thought. without getting into the where plato went wrong you know in terms of those very deep disorders of greek philosophy paralleling and being you know kind of inspired by torah thought and overlapping there and where that came from we're not going to go into now but Plato built a very metaphysical, spiritual, very deep system of thought that was much more transcendental and kind of transcended classic human intellect. And Aristotle, kind of, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, chesedentiferous, yin-yang, and kind of bringing that back down, uh, combated Plato's more metaphysical, transcendental um, platonic system of ideas And constrained everything to pure human intellect uh, pure mathematics pure constrained constrictive philosophy the, the ramban would say anything that he didn't understand could not be true and as opposed to yearning for the truth and going on the journey aristotle closed the door he basically said i've discovered the truth and i've contained it within the realms of boundaries and quantified human dynamics and we've perfected everything. We've concluded the journey towards the truth as opposed to going on the endless journey. So Tom Socrates went on the original journey and didn't find it Plato went on that journey deeper and found something deeper. Aristotle brought it back down to the realm of human physics and human intellect. And that was essentially the closed story. And who was Aristotle's common move? Who was Aristotle's, you know, prime student?
0: Alexander the Great.
1: Alexander the Great, and who essentially tried
0: started on earth for three years. Yes, yeah,
1: and he sent him on a mission to go spread that truth. You know, the first Chabad, you know, go go spread this everywhere. And we've essentially discovered the truth and go Hellenize the world and spread light to the world. And Alexander the Great went on that mission. You know, by getting to all the historical components, that was what ultimately manifests in the battle of Hanukkah, which is that the Greeks said, "We have light. We have truth." And Klaisho said, you have a part of the truth. You know, Yaflikim, Yafx, Bish, shame we're supposed to harmonize, but you don't accept anything that's higher. And you've concluded the journey of truth as opposed to recognizing that's endless. And the Rabban would say, you can never reach the infinite. You can only get infinitely closer. And the Tzaddik says, I'll never get there. So, you know, I'll take one more step towards it. The Russia says, I'll never get there. What's the point? So the human condition, the human drive is to limit the infinite into the finite while pretending it's still infinite so that I can essentially be the infinite and reach it as opposed to embracing the journey towards it. And the Hanukkah battle is essentially the battle for light and truth while the Greeks claim to have light and truth, they essentially darkened it because they finiteize the infinite and condense the journey of truth into something which is of the past. And the essence of the the hanukkah battle is saying that the truth is endless and it's infinite and that's the journey of torah that's the journey of light and when you condense that you destroy it but to say it's beyond me is also to destroy it because then you say what's the point it's beyond me i can't even reach it but to say that i'm within the process of going on that infinite journey and the journey is that we should be taking that's the, the journey of truth which is the journey towards it And the postmodernists are the same fundamental egotistical, I mean, ego is basically what creates the finitizing of that which is infinite, which is saying I can contain it. And to say that I have attained the truth, I am the truth, I know the truth, everyone else is blockheaded and dumb, and my job is to essentially spread that truth but not to allow it to progress and for me to become more because I already have it. That's the egotistical phenomenon of pure evil, which is someone who deeply, deeply cares about the truth, someone deeply wants the truth, who has a kernel of it, but pretends like they have all of it, stops the process and tries to essentially indoctrinate everyone else and destroy everyone else's paradigm of the truth because they think they know better. That's the fundamental problem of ego. And that's what the university system is implementing. That's what Hollywood does. That's what the liberal media does. And it's because of the people behind it who essentially fund it, who say that we believe that we know everything and that we are better than everyone else is dogmatic, close-minded, dumb, foolish, living in the past and in a relative stone age to the enlightenment that we have. And we have to help save the world. And so the people- so, so
0: where, where do we go from here, particularly American Jewry? Right. Again, we're getting a censor in Israel of, of an American jury that is afraid, is experiencing fear, perhaps for the first time. We're hearing stories of people packing guns, older women looking to get licenses for guns to defend themselves, you know, liberals who become conservatives now. I mean, is is this, is this where, where do you go from? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Where does American jury oh. go?
1: Beautifully okay. optimistic. Beautifully optimistic. Yeah. If you understand the the how history works, every breakdown is the opportunity for an ultimate buildup and every shattering is the opportunity for something great. It's like the same.
0: What well, you've called it, this is a turning, a potential turning, turning point, point history. For, for sure.
1: I mean, if you look at history, for example, the writing down of Torshbalpath was probably the most controversial decision in Jewish history. Right. And it was essentially the root of the greatest birth of the highest form of learning towards Balpeh in Jewish history. Chanukah, was a battle against human intellect, but it became the, the Chag of Torsh which is essentially, as opposed to combating the Greeks and human intellect, we're going to not only defeat the Greeks, but heighten the use of human intellect within Klai Israel, which is the essence of Torsh And if you look at every, like the Holocaust and the birth of the the state of Israel. Every stage of darkness gives birth to an existential opening of something that was lacking. So, for example, where are postmodernists right? Postmodernists are right in the sense that if you are truly dogmatic, if you are ritualistic, if you only believe in that which you're taught, you don't learn how to think and try to yearn for holistic life of truly delving deep into your existence and your mind and your soul and trying to fully express who you are they got the formula wrong but they tapped into something very deep which is that you need to wake up and self-actualization taking full advantage of the life you have not being stuck in compartmentalization fragmentation and kind of doing that which is has been done for no reason other than that which has been done. It's not a formula for individuals striving for meaning and Torah greatness and Jewish greatness and pursuing truth at the highest level. So even the pursuit of truth is not something that you will find very often within a a traditional society because they believe that we're just here to express that which was. The opening and the transition point is that every Jew I mean, why why are Jews in Eretz Israel so idealistic? Why why cannot why can they not but be idealistic? It's because when someone's trying to kill you for who you are, you need to know who you are, because otherwise, why would you be who you are? You need to justify your existence, your identity, your habits, your life. And we're seeing this today.
0: People who are, who are making statements for the first time in my life.
1: I'm I'm Jewish. I, I'm thinking about why I'm Jewish. Yeah, right. and and it's like. When you live, why is every hero story, everyone who does something great with their life, that's the same story? I faced a real crisis. I, I struggled. My life broke down, broke apart, and I had to put the pieces back together. And I started to question why I do what I do. And I started to actually build good habits. I started to take my life seriously. And I started to grow and to think and to contribute. I tried to live a meaningful life and then I tried to help other people do it because I realized there's no other way to live life. Like, that's the fundamental Torah story. It's a fundamental hero story. It's a fundamental story. And when you live in comfort and ease, you fall asleep. And Jews across the world are waking up. They're waking up that, number one, I don't really know as much as I should know about what I think I know. And I need to think. I need to question. I need to deepen. I need to really go on. I need to take this life seriously. And number two, everything I take for granted, like life like the fact that i'm jewish like the fact that i'm here maybe i shouldn't and maybe this life that i do have is not just kind of flying by and being taken for granted but maybe i could make something and then when you have individuals that do that you start to have collective groupings of individuals who do that and then you get communities they're on fire they're passionate they're driven it's like i grew up i'm not gonna go too deep into it but Jewish society in America of of essential ease, there's no passion, there's no mission, there's no purpose. There's nothing that's trying to be accomplished as much as just kind of make a living, have good meals and go to a shear and check off the spiritual checkbox of like, I'm a good Jew, but that's not life. Never has been, never will be. And when you start to wake up to the fact that you have a very limited amount of time in this world, and not only do we have a purpose in life, but you do. And you need to become a warrior by contributing, whether it's financially, whether it's educationally, whether it's existentially, giving your time, being passionate, pursuing something of meaning in yourself, seeing who you can become, and then contributing your life to that which is bigger than yourself on a communal level, on a societal level, on a religious level. Like, that's how you build anything. And you take the same formula for building a successful business, to a successful community, to a successful mission in life. Like, we are waking up to the fact that being passive and just waiting for, like, you have the classic, everyone will basically, when things happen say, Mashiach will come. It's like the classic Jewish response when bad things happen. But you have a classic Jewish, in Jewish thought, there's always been two parallel components of how Mashiach will come. One is that we'll bring it, and the other is that it will come when things get so bad. And what people don't realize is that it's never been one or the other, but that's how the process is designed to work, is that it's, it's kind of the famous principle of that you need to put in the work, but the result comes from Hashem. It's a classic question of how do you, you get in good physical shape? Do you dive in for it or do you work out? How do you become Tamil Chacham? Do you learn Torah all day or do you just dive in for it? How do you build a marriage? Do you actually put in the work or do you dive in for it? And it's not one or the other. It's recognizing that you go 100% both. 100%
0: both.
1: And the result comes from Hashem because the opportunity came from Hashem. So you don't disconnect source from expression, but you also don't disconnect physics, cause and effect, and logic. And kind of doing away with one for the other, either way, is such a precursors in the fundamental sense of not understanding the mechanics of how Hashem created the world. It's like, why did all the miracles Hashem created upon T.S. was have to happen with the matah, with physical, with a physical foundation? It's like, not understanding the mechanics of miraculous and natural, it's like, why did there have to be any shaman? for the menorah to light eight days? Why'd there have to be anything? Because you need that beautiful synthesis in order for the miraculous to transcend from the natural and to recognize the miraculous within the natural. And to take full responsibility of we're not waiting for Mashiach, but we're trying to live to the fullest extent that we can in alignment with the truth by recognizing we're not there yet and we have to progress and move forward but we're not ditching the path like the postmodernist radical lefts do but we're building off of it and then you take full responsibility as an individual to not say we will do this but i'm going to sit by and wait but you take full responsibility to say you know Hashem created the world for me because every cog in the system needs to self-actualize in order for the system to work and most people, they don't have the identity or the confidence to actually believe they can do something great with their lives because they have never experienced it in the past. And they think that the people who do it are just more different than them, naturally gifted, talented, creative, brilliant, ambitious, good looking. They just have the talent. And I've never met someone who's achieved anything great based on talent alone. Talent will get you started a skill, technique, discipline and building that relentless drive is the only way that you make it great. And someone who has no talent and all of those other components goes infinitely further than someone with talent alone. And yeah, use, use your talent, but it's the recognition that being woken up, it's like when I used to speak, I, I shared, you know, when I was 17, I had this like, you know, near-death, near-death experiences my life fell apart and people used to come over to me when I started answers. So you're saying that I can only achieve something great if like my life falls apart or if I have like near-death experiences. And I, I would like, after the first couple of speeches, I re- reorganize the speech, but I always tell them the same thing, which is like, absolutely not. Like the whole point that I'm giving you this speech is to give you that simulated wake-up call. So you don't have to go through that experience where your life falls apart and you can get woken up now. And that's kind of the gift is that there are people who have not experienced any pain or terror attack themselves everyone knows someone who has within the past couple months but use this as your fundamental wake-up call like use this as your breakdown it's like avraham avram i mean this is one of the most powerful ideas which is that avram was avram and he became avraham and avram was told by hashem you're going to be the father of the great nation and avram told hashem like seems chutzbedek and seems nonsensical for someone who's pursuing the truth to tell the source of all truth that what you just said is not true, right? He said, but the stars say I'm not going to. What does that mean? It means that in the system of Teva, in the natural system that you built, I'm not going to have a future. And what does the Rashi explain best in the Midrith? The Hashem took Avraham above the stars. Meaning what? The Hashem took Abraham outside the system of nature and showed him that you are capable of becoming someone. You just have to become that person. Right now, Avraham is not that father of the nation. Avraham is. You need to become Avraham. You need to transform. And that's why Ramesh Shapir explains that Avraham was someone who says, an- an- okay, offer, um, But dust and ashes, which we think means humility. But to ash something is to break it down into its elemental form. And dirt is where you replant it to essentially rebirth it into something more. And the challenges Avraham faced literally broke him down and built him into someone who was able to become someone who he was capable of becoming and transformed him into that version of himself. Well, he became Avraham, and he says, Anochi Afar Fe'ifer, after he became Avraham. Because once he realized that the challenges Hashem sent him broke him down to build him back up, the the same thing when you build muscle. You literally need to rip your muscle fibers apart to help them rebuild stronger than before that's how growth happens at a physical level emotional level intellectual level existential level you need pressure you need resistance you need to break in order to build yourself back up once Avram realized the formula he said for vapor which is that now that i know the only way to build is to break i don't need to wait for hashem to break me i can break myself and i can actually believe in the value of challenge struggle and crisis and chaos and, and breakdown that's the only way that you progress and move forward and i think that the light not only at the end of this tunnel but right now especially as we're coming to hanukkah the light is to recognize that every great thing that's ever happened in your life every great thing that's ever happened in history and more importantly every great thing that's ever happened in jewish history has always been because of the challenges we fixed if you go through all the gullias every single holiday that we we celebrate is because of the great truth and light that was revealed right after the existential struggle we faced. Right after Mitzrayim, we received the Torah. Right after Hanukkah, was the greatest birth of Torah Pen in human history. Right after Purim, of the of the next stage of big metabal the Torah. It's like, we don't celebrate the struggle, we don't celebrate the victory, we celebrate the victory that came from the struggle. And that's the, the fundamental story of Torah, it's the fundamental hero's journey. And it's if anyone is even a little self-aware and if you've lived just a couple years of life especially as an adult if you actually go back and read your story you'll recognize that the only reason you are who you are and the greatest parts of your life came from what you thought were the worst things that ever happened to you and it's not only poetic and inspiring it's truth and that's the whole story of life is recognizing the story the most important thing that the balai marchava say is you need to write your own Megillah. And we're coming to the Hanukkah now with the Purim story. halachically, you need to write, read the Purim story in order. And the reason why is because the only way that you really see the miraculous nature of Purim without any open miracle is by seeing how everything that seemed to be bad was really good. Everything that seemed to be you know kind of a pitfall ended up being the foundation for something greater. And every piece of that story kind of unfolds into the most miraculous natural miracle in human history. And Hanukkah was the smallest. The transition from open miracles of ETS Mitzrayim, and Mountain Torah, the Hanukkah was the smallest open miracle in Jewish history, an open miracle that when the Machama, there's no literal miracle, the Maral says that was a hidden miracle, and the nace of the of the oil of the Pach Shaman. How many people saw that? Right? It's something we know about, but no one saw that. That was literally in the base of gosh. So it's the smallest open miracle in Jewish history, and Purim was the biggest most open hidden miracle in Jewish history was that transition to the stage where now the knees nice and the is sense and the essence of this stage of history is to recognize that we need to start reading that story and seeing how everything that seems to be just nature and just politics and just kind of the news is the unfolding of the Jewish story and those, the story of Torah and the more important thing the bala says you need to write your Megillah which is not only to recognize that miracle that happened, you know, by part of, but to recognize that story that happens within your own life and then to write the rest of that story, to take ownership, using your free will to actually write it. And the, the, the very deep Masora is one of the deepest ideas in all of Torah thought, that, that we can give a whole share in this because it's a very deep topic, but essentially Torah is a story. Right, and, and if you look at the Chamisha Chamshat Torah, it's a story, and within that story contains all of truth, but it's a story. And then, even once Ma'an Torah closed, you still have Nevuah, prophecy, which continues that story of Nevi M'exuven. And then, once prophecy ends, which is right about Hanukkah and Purim time, you still have the same story, just no one's writing it down. And what the the deeper Jewish thinkers explain based on the maharal, based on based on a lot of uh, deeper makaros, is that the Torah hasn't ended or closed the writing in terms of the actual canon has closed because we no longer have anyone to write it down. But one day, someone will once again, be able to write it down and recognize that everything that happened since the end of Xurvin has still been part of Torah and part of that story. And what we're witnessing right now is literally It's like this would be a turning point that you'd see as, you know, a Purim story, a Hanukkah story, uh, you'd see a Mitzrayim story and to give infinite meaning to your personal life as part of the greatest story of all time is where people get the inspiration to actually stand up. And not only, you know, whether we'll talk about whether it's important to stand up and go to these rallies, you know, it's it's an important conversation. But the most important thing to realize is that the biggest difference in life does not happen in politics. It doesn't happen you know, with these giant mass rallies where it happens day by day, where you devote your life to becoming everything you can become, which means becoming everything you can become as an individual, expanding into something bigger than yourself in a marriage, in a family, in a community, in a kahila, part of Christ, to the world as a whole. And when you take full responsibility for your life and actually go on that journey, It's not only the greatest journey of all time. It's not only the greatest life of all time. It's not only the most meaningful purpose of life all time. And if you're struggling financially, it's not only the means to actually becoming financially independent and successful. And if you're struggling with meaning and purpose, it's not only the means to actually living the greatest, most exhilarating existential life imaginable. It is the only way possible to live life based on the, the, the framework of life that you've been given. And the more people that take full responsibility for their lives, the more client becomes because the, the collective always transcends some of his parts, but it's always directly in correlation to the quality of the individual pieces as well. And that's literally the story of Hanukkah.
0: Fortunately, our our, our time is up. I think we've just touched the the this. We always say the tip of the iceberg here, and hopefully <laughs> we'll be able to continue this at some point with, with Rabbi. right? But thank you really for the Deep words, inspiring words, and, and we should just witness uh, a physical victory and a spiritual victory in the days of, in the days ahead. Thank you so much. I for
1: mean, I mean, pleasure is all mine. Thank you.